If you have your Bibles or Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 6. Luke and chapter 6, and we are going to look at verses 20 through 26 in our time together this morning, the Beatitudes in the beginning of what's known as the Sermon on the Plain. Last week, uh, we looked at verses 12 through 19, and we talked a little bit about um, the importance of community, uh, of being in a church community, of being around people who are unlike us in some respects, people who we, quite frankly, would not hang out with if it weren't for our common attachment to Jesus. And I, I mentioned this because uh, we talked about it in the morning, I got to see it in action that night as we birthed a new life group. Um, and it was really cool to see um, them together, people, like I said, who, who maybe wouldn't be uh, together uh, outside of common attachment to Jesus and First Baptist. And so we want you all to experience this as well. And so next week, um, we are having church conference immediately following our quarterly conference, immediately following worship. And then after that, we're going to have a general information meeting on life groups. Uh, Chuck is going to lead that. And so after conference, stay back. And this, you're not committing, you're not, you know, anything like that, all right? Just general information about groups. Um, if you're, what are these about? Uh, how can I get in one? Or how can I facilitate or even host? And so make sure you hang out. Um, after conference next week for that. Uh, but for this morning, let's go ahead and look at Luke 6 and, and uh, verses 20 through 26. I imagine you have it by now. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. God's Word says, And he, Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leave for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Amen. This is God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. What is... The good life. If someone asked you what living the good life looked like, I wonder what you'd say. How would you define it? What would it entail? Or let's ask it another way. What would your life have to look like in order for you to consider it all and say, I'm living the good life? Or to look back on your life at the end of it and say, I've lived the good life. Or what would someone else's life have to look like for you to look at them and say, they're living the good life. I think, don't you, most people's answers would be more or less the same. Good and fulfilling job. Good pay. Financial security. Good health. Lots of leisure time or the ability to travel to interesting places. Who could forget a sweet car, Right? being well thought of by peers and friends, things like this. Don't you think that would be generally most people's answers? And why do we think that? Why, why do we believe that the good life is essentially fulfillment via things we do or things we can obtain? And why are we discontented when we don't get those things, thinking we must strive for them or simply wish we had them lest our lives have yet to be good or full? We know right why, right? The good life looks like what we are constantly told it should look like. We believe the 
Good life is stuff and job and power and money and holidays and influence and impressiveness before others because we're told that this is what the good life entails, right? Companies spend millions of dollars a year trying to sell you on this vision of life. We're told seemingly at every turn through every medium, this is how to live a life of meaning and purpose and value. What is the good life? This is the question that every person and every religion is seeking to answer. And every company and business is marketing the answer to happiness and fulfillment because everyone knows that's what everyone is searching for. But now let me ask you another somewhat related question, okay? What is better, to be rich or to be poor? To have a lot or just enough? And which is more conducive to living the good life, wealth or poverty? Would it be better to be hungry or filled? Would it be better to weep or to laugh? Would it be better to be hated or well-liked? Now here's yet another one. How would Jesus answer those questions? How would Jesus define the good life? Where would Jesus say we ought to locate meaning and purpose and value? Would a single thing that I've just listed about our cultural definitions of the good life make Jesus' list? What do you think? Tell me. Would they? What we have before us this morning is what is known as the Beatitudes, a, a word every Christian has heard before. We see them in Matthew 5 to begin the Sermon on the Mount. We see them here in Luke 6 to begin the Sermon on the Plain. And even as Christians, we've heard this word, you've heard this word, Yes many times before in your life, do we truly understand what their purpose is? What is a beatitude? I think most of us, even though we've heard the word many times, would struggle to define it. So what is it? Well, we can start by saying what they aren't, okay? They aren't beatitudes, okay? <laughs> and by that, I mean they aren't attitudes Jesus is saying you should have. Nor are they blessings God gives to people, nor are they promises that if you do this, God will do this. Or if we do one thing, God will do the other thing for us. There really is no good word in English to translate this word that we typically translate as beatitude. But beatitude means something like happiness or flourishing. And I think we have a slide for this. Happiness or flourishing. But even our English word happiness, yes, is tainted by emotionalism and it carries with it the idea that our joy is tied to circumstances. Isn't that fair to say? That, that's our cultural word for happiness. Rather, the Beatitudes are descriptions and commendations of the good life. They are invitations by Jesus of a way to be in the world that will result in the disciples' true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. They are, says Jonathan Pennington, an invitation for hearers to reorient their thinking and sensibilities about what it means to thrive and live fully. With the Beatitudes and the whole Sermon on the Plain, Jesus is offering an invitation to reorient life in God's way. Jesus is trying to show his disciples then as now what it looks like to be truly human, to live as God intended for us to live and empowered by Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So when we ask the question, what does it mean to live the good life? And the world answers a fulfilling job, financial security, a nice house, lots of vacations, sweet car, put together and successful kids, a fulfilling marriage. Jesus challenges that and says the good life is life in me. Regardless of what your present circumstances are, Jesus doesn't define the good life the way we do at all, does he? If, if what the Beatitudes are is telling us how to flourish, and you just read through them, are they similar to how we would define the good life at all? Not at all. Jesus utterly flips the world's answer to a good life upside down, because whereas the world would list wealth and satisfaction in things of earth, Jesus says that your satisfaction lies beyond this world. Because not only is 
all you really need sitting at the right hand of the Father, but your reward lies in the age to come, not in this one. Do you see? In a book I was recently reading called Living Wisely with the Church Fathers, I came across a a paragraph that hits on this well, and I kept thinking of it this week as I prepared. The author says this, Church Father Chrysostom believed that how we live in the midst of this present evil age should be shaped by God's ultimate goal for human history. Beatitudes hit at this. The present must be viewed and lived in light of the end. God's character, promises, and providences are the guarantees that in every circumstance, all things that come to us from him have a favorable outcome, provided that our activities don't get in the way. Jesus desires for the disciples' values, you, if you know him, to align with his to see the world as he sees it, and to live for something beyond what one sees and experiences. Things are not what they seem. You know this? Things are not what they seem. And what society values is not what God values. So the one who follows Jesus, us, must reevaluate how they define the good life. And they must reorient how they see the world and what they cherish, what they strive for, and how they approach life to align with Christ's. This is what the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Plain are getting at. So we will do as we did last week by thinking what it means to be a kingdom person, so journeying through this vanity fair of a world on the way to Celestial City. So four points this morning, okay? In honor of uh, Final Four, we're going into double overtime, all right? I'm just kidding, maybe. Four points this morning, beginning with number one, all right? Kingdom people define life differently. Point number one. Kingdom people define life differently. I want you to notice straight away how Jesus not only offers us four beatitudes here, but he also offers us four corresponding woes, doesn't he? A woe is an exclamation of pain or pity for someone in a certain situation, okay? For Jesus here, those woes are warnings and calls for repentance to those who may be tempted to trust too greatly in things like what? Riches, comfort, popularity, and possessions, right? So these woes are the opposite of the Beatitudes. Whereas the kingdom person may be poor because of their association with Jesus and therefore trust in God to satisfy their every need, those who are wealthy and trust and depend on their wealth to make them whole are to be pitied because they get nothing beyond their worldly treasures. Do you see? But is Jesus really saying that everyone who is poor is inherently good and everyone who is rich is inherently bad? Is there something commendable about poverty and something condemnable about wealth? Are those who are poor automatically inheriting the kingdom of God while those who are rich are automatically damned? Of course Jesus isn't saying that, right? Poverty and wealth are ethically neutral, aren't they? in and of themselves. It's not ethically good or bad to be poor, and it's not ethically good or bad to be rich. Further, Jesus is speaking about his disciples, right? Not everyone. Clearly, verse 20 says that. He is, like we mentioned, inviting those who are kingdom people to think differently about the world and to cease to define life the way the world defines life. See, we think the goal in this life is to be happy. Yes? And happiness is tied to what we can get in the world. It is defined by the fulfillment of possession, relationships, and worldly acclaim. So go and get those things, right? If you want to be happy, go and get those things. That's what life is to be full of. Striving to get and get and get of things of earth, and if they don't fulfill you, you know what you're supposed to do? Just move on and find it elsewhere. Because the king of your life is happiness, who happens to be a petulant and hard-to-please king. And this happiness is inherently tied to what we can possess or become. But then here comes Jesus. And what does he show us? Ironically, is this not ironic? The good things that the world tends to look at to provide happiness and value and the good life just happen to be the woes of verses 24 through 26. But is it bad to have stuff? Is it bad to laugh? Is it bad to have people think well of you? 
Not necessarily, but they aren't automatically good or signs of blessing or evidence of living the good life either. Do you see? What, what Jesus wants to know is what are you living for? What do you value? And really, what is your goal in life? The world says the answer is here in the world. Jesus says, you won't find it there. Do you see? Like, if we could ask Jesus these questions, based on what our culture values, what would he say? If we said, surely being rich is good and being poor is bad. Is that not what culture says? Rich equals good, poor equals bad, right? Is that fair to say? No one strives to be poor. Everyone strives to be rich. (laughs) Or to at least have more than they currently do. The rich want more riches or at least desire to maintain what they have and everything will be fine. The poor want to get more so they can stop being poor and then everything will be fine. We have made a cultural judgment value that says one is good and commendable and the other one is bad and base. And Jesus says, not so fast. So if we said, Jesus... Being rich is good and being poor is bad. Jesus would say, not necessarily. And if we said, being full is good, being hungry is bad. Jesus would say, not necessarily. And if we said, laughing is surely better than weeping, Jesus would say, not necessarily. And if we said, being well thought of and well spoken about is good, being maligned and hated is bad, Jesus would say, Not necessarily. Jesus' words here should be a shock, would be a shock to his original audience, and they should be a shock to us too. Because he is flipping, don't you see? He is flipping our entire value system on its head. Because here's the key to what Jesus is saying here, okay? He's telling kingdom people to stop attaching their flourishing and happiness and wholeness to their situation or their status in the world. Because you won't find it there. Because look again at what he says in 20 20 through 22. It isn't that kingdom people are blessed because they are poor, or hungry, or weeping, or hated. They are blessed or flourishing. This is very important. They are blessed or flourishing or whole because theirs is the kingdom. Because they will be satisfied because they will laugh, because they're in the company of the prophets, and because their reward is in heaven. Do you see? That's why they're blessed. See, we want to base our joy and our fulfillment on how we are doing in the world, right? Tell me, tell me I'm wrong. Of course that's true. Jesus says that's a fool's errand. Judging your joy or fulfillment on how you're doing in the world is a fool's errand. And you'll never be fulfilled this way. Instead, consider who you are as a kingdom citizen and locate your wholeness on that. Your identity is in Jesus, not on who you are or what you can accomplish under the sun. Jesus says, you will always be discontented if you base what it means to flourish on the world and your situation and how things seem. He knows the human heart, for he created it. And he knows that the heart trying to stuff itself full of things And relationships in this world in order to be happy will be left with hearts just as empty as when they started. Because what happens when you get everything you want? You can stop? You can stop? You can cease chasing? You can cease looking? You can cease accumulating? Look at the world and tell me if they're happy. Are they happy? Are they whole? Are they content? Does the chase ever, ever end? It's like the author of Ecclesiastes said, it's a chasing after the wind. It's vanity. I thought of a, as I was thinking about this, I thought of a page in Tim Keller's book, King's Cross. And he mentions Cynthia Heimel, who used to be a writer for The Village Voice. And he says she wrote an article he'll, he'll never forget about all the people she had known over the years who were like struggling to become actors and actresses, and they would work in these restaurants, right? And they would punch tickets at theaters to pay their bills, striving to become a famous actor or actress, and then they became famous. And she knew people who achieved this goal. When they were struggling, 
They said, if I could only make it in the business, if only I had this or that, I'd be happy. But would you know what happened when they got what they wanted? They became insufferable, <laughs> unstable, angry, and manic, is what she says. Not just arrogant, they became unhappier. They became unhappier than they used to be. Listen to what Heimel wrote. She said, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed. The morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened and nothing changed. They were still them. This disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. She was sorry for them. She felt sorry for them. They had the things they thought would make everything okay, and it didn't. Then Heimel added this statement. She said, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants your deepest wishes. Jesus says, don't buy into the discontenting idea that your meaning and your wholeness in life depends on your situation in this world. Because you may get all your wishes and still be miserable and empty. But if you have me, says Jesus, you could be whole and flourishing and happy no matter what the situation you find yourself in in this life. Isn't that better? Puritan Timothy Burroughs hit on this in a sermon he preached called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, where he said that people normally think that to achieve contentment, you have to attain whatever it is you desire. In other words, our possessions need to be raised up to the level of our desires. But the Christian has another way to contentment, he said. He could bring his desires down to his possessions. G.K. Chesterton said something similar. He said, there are two ways to get enough. Have you heard this quote before? One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. Jesus is showing us here that our vision of wholeness and fulfillment and happiness and flourishing, it needs a radical reorientation. We don't need the vision that the world gives. We don't need to place our joys on our earthly situations. We don't need to place our value on what we have, what we don't have, or what people think of us. We just need Jesus. And when we have him, we have wholeness because only he can fill our restless hearts. And only he can make us live as truly human, pursuing God's way of being in the world. So the question staring all of us in the face is this. Where do you locate wholeness and flourishing and happiness? Ask yourself that. The world says, find it in how you feel, right? Find it in how things are going for you. Find it in your health or your stuff or in another person. Jesus says, find it in me. And you'll thus be whole no matter what your situation on earth is. And this leads us naturally to our next point, point number two. Kingdom people rely on God. Kingdom people rely on God. Only six chapters into Luke's gospel. And one cannot escape the feeling that he does not highly prize wealth, status, and power. That's obvious. But he seems more favorable to the poor and the oppressed. And this is only beginning. As Luke will continue to point us to Jesus' harsh words on wealth over and over again. And here it is no less true. Blessed are the poor. Woe to the who? Rich. Woe to the full. Woe to those who laugh. Woe to those well thought of. What are we to make of this? Is Luke against wealth? Is it bad to be rich? I mean, think of one of Jesus' most famous sayings. It's easier for a camel to go through what? The eye of a needle than for a rich person to do what? <laughs> Everybody knows. Enter the kingdom of God. And we're like, he didn't mean that, but he did. Right? Is that true? Is it true that it's easier to shove a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get in the kingdom of God? So in our culture, we think to be rich is to be overprivileged, but Jesus says the opposite. 
doesn't he, in that verse? To be rich is to be underprivileged. It's a handicap. And why? Because it may very well be the thing that keeps you out of the kingdom of God. David Garland says, Jesus regards possessions as almost insurmountable obstacle that prevent one from giving oneself completely to God. But how? Is it really easier to get into the kingdom of God if you're poor? Yeah. <laughs> they won't admit that. That's what he says. Yes, it is. I know we want to soften Jesus' word, but we must not. He meant what he said. But why is this the case? Why is it easier to fit the largest animal in first century Palestine into one of the smallest openings one can think of? Well, here's the key, okay? Because it's easier to admit one's need and to depend on God for all things when you are poor. Isn't that true? Then if you're rich, when you have nothing, you must look outside of yourself. Yes? When you have everything, you'll be tempted to look at self and have difficulty admitting need since you know you don't need anything. <laughs> Danny Agus says it like this. The point is wealth breeds confidence in oneself, and it has an addictive quality. It becomes life's priority, and the things of God go by the wayside. An indispensable requirement for entering the kingdom of God is something we talk about often. Indispensable. An admittance of need. Yes? Of weakness, right? And the helpless dependence on God. Isn't that required for salvation? And that is something that is more difficult to admit when you feel that you lack nothing. And it's just true. It's something more difficult to admit when you believe that everything you have, you earned yourself. Plus, when you have a lot in terms of worldly goods, it's easy to focus on maintaining what you have or acquiring more then the things of God get pushed to the peripheries of life or disappear completely. This makes me think of something I heard about several years ago called the South Indian monkey trap. Have you guys ever heard of that before? South Indian monkey trap? How come nothing I mentioned you guys have heard before? <laughs> Essentially, villagers were trying to catch monkeys right, who were stealing their food. So they came up with a solution, okay? They, they would take a coconut that had been carefully hollowed out at one end and chained it to a pole in the ground, okay? And then they'd put some sweet rice in it through the hollowed-out opening, which was big enough for a monkey to place its hand in and grab a handful of rice, but too small, you see, too small for it to remove its clenched fist with the rice, okay? Eventually, some monkeys came along, right? They discovered the rice. They reached inside the coconut. They'd greedily clutch as much of the rice as possible, and they'd make the fist in the process, and suddenly what? They found themselves trapped. All they had to do was what? They let go, right? Let go. Evolution? Come on. They, they couldn't figure out just let go? All they had to do was let go. Simple enough. There's nothing preventing them from escape, <laughs> Only their minds, which have been ingrained from birth, to hold on tight to food when they find it. So that same mindset led to some of their deaths. We have been told through every conceivable means to not settle for what we have. To always want more. To pursue it with all of our mights. And we, of course, buy into the vision of good life. Everybody else is doing it. Then we accumulate stuff and more stuff, and it's never enough, and then the offer of salvation contingent on our admitting weakness and depending on God comes along, and we can't seem to let go of the riches, and we feel trapped. All we have to do is what? Release the hold. That's too much for some people. This, this is a fitting illustration of why Jesus warns against earthly riches and, and tying our meaning to things of earth because to receive him in his kingdom, we have to let go of our vision that anything under the sun can cause us to flourish. Yeah, let go of that vision. As Garland said, many cannot envision life without things they cherish. They're in danger of losing the only life that counts. What Jesus is after, again, not, not that it is inherently bad to be rich, right? Or inherently good to be poor. What he's getting at is that to flourish, to be happy, to be whole, we must be in a constant state of dependence on him. No one could deny that it is hard to depend on someone outside of yourself when you have a lot already. 
and have become self-sufficient. No one can deny it's easier to ask for help when you're in a constant state of need, right? But the rub for most of us Americans is that compared to the rest of the world, most of us are rich, aren't we? Even if we don't think we are. So truly, this is a danger for who? All of us. All of us. Jesus' vision of flourishing is you who are poor are blessed because you look to God to provide. You who are hungry are blessed because you have a God who will satisfy you. You are weeping, which oftentimes is connected to need. You are blessed because God is with you in the pain. You are hated for your connection to Christ are blessed because your reward in heaven is great. Jesus is flipping the ethics of the world on its head. He says, trust in God, depend on God, rest in God. And if things of earth don't go the way you want them to, keep trusting, keep depending, keep resting. There are boxes this, despite the desperation of our external condition, they are blessed because God's kingdom is composed of faithful people who can live above their circumstances and trust God. Here's the keynote, he says, of the Beatitudes and woes. God's blessing is on those who come to him to receive what he generously offers, and that blessing knows no socioeconomic limitation. In fact, one's position may be an obstacle to blessing. So another question Jesus is asking is this. And I want you to ask it of yourself. Who do you depend on? Who do you rely on? Where is your ultimate trust resting? All of us want to say what? Well, God, of course. But we really need to probe our hearts to see if this is actually the case. How do you know you aren't depending on your stuff? Or your money? Or your job? Or your family? Or your relationships? Or your name? Or your health? Or your beauty? Or your reputation? How do you know? We all know intrinsically why it's foolish to trust in those things. We all know. Depend on those things for happiness and wholeness. Don't we know? Think about it. Why is it foolish to depend on yourself and your stuff or your relationships or anything on earth to bring you meaning and joy and flourishing? Your house can burn down. Yes? Your boat can sink. Your car could be totaled. You could lose your job. Stock market could crash. The tests can come back positive. Your relationships can fail. People can disappoint you. Bills can stack up. Has this ever happened to you? Things can break seemingly all at the same time and tie all your money up. And then what? Life will be found to have little meaning because the things we've placed our hopes in are flimsy and fragile. Jesus says in this space, depend on me instead, so that whatever circumstance you're in, you'll still find fullness. Because I can't be taken from you. And I will never leave you. So friend, what is it that is bearing the weight of your life right now? What is it that you're depending on to give you the meaning and purpose and happiness that everyone is seeking? You know, you walked in this building today. You found a chair. You sat down. And the chair is holding your weight. And it's evident, isn't it? You know that you're depending on the chair. The person next to you knows that you're depending on the chair. Everyone in the room knows that the chair is supporting your weight. It's, it's evident. As for your life and your fulfillment and your flourishing, who is presently bearing that weight? Who are you depending on? You look at your life and your anxieties and your thoughts and your daydreams. It will be evident. Jesus says through the Beatitudes and woes not to put your weight on anything but him. And he is saying that your legs can't bear the weight for long. And he's saying the things of earth can't bear the weight for long because eventually they will come tumbling down, but he won't. So you can live for him and hold a loose grip on things of earth, and you can live for more than this present life. And this brings us to a, directly to our point number three. Kingdom people 
have an eternal perspective. Kingdom people have an eternal perspective. I want you to notice, look, look back at your text, your Bible or your scripture journal, and look at Jesus' use of the word now. As, a, as to poverty, those who are disciples and are poor, you are present possessors of the kingdom of God, right? Isn't that what he says? That's present tense. The kingdom is yours. You don't have to wait to be a member of the kingdom. You are a citizen now, though you will enjoy the kingdom in fullness in future. But see how he says, blessed are you who are hungry, what? Now. Woe to you who are full, now. Blessed are you who weep, now. Woe to you who laugh, now. And then the promises and warnings. For you shall be satisfied. For you shall be hungry. For you shall laugh. For you shall mourn and weep. So again, we see this reversal of fortune. But we also see that what is now is not forever. Whatever the disciple will face in life, it will be reversed. Bach explains better than I can when he says the point of what Jesus is making is that one's future is not measured by either current or external criteria. The key to the present is the security of one's relationship to God as it is brought to fruition in the future. The promise would only appeal to those who have a spiritual perception of reality in the future, to those who have a deep sense of God's being alive and sovereign, and those who trust that God will act and level out injustice someday. Jesus not only wants his disciples to find their flourishing in him now, but he wants them to have an eternal perspective. He wants them to know that not everything is what it seems. And that no poverty, hunger, tear, or slander towards them will go unseen and uncompensated. He wants them to see that the road of depending on him and following him may be bumpy. Yes? Following Jesus might be bumpy sometimes, that road, and rot with pains, but it leads to life and vindication in the end. That's what he's saying. But on the flip side, he warns that an attitude of independence from God is a road to destruction. Its reward is fleeting and limited to the present. In other words, if you settle for things of this life and do not depend on God, do not submit to Him as King, and care only on what you could get from this world, you have your reward. Your reward is the enjoyment you get out of this life, and that's all. Jesus is saying, if this is where you place your hopes... If this is where your life focuses, if this is where your life effort is, then this all you get in this life and the next. This is a loser's trophy in the eternal perspective. But Christian, we must not just feel the force of the darkness of this passage, but the comfort. The promise that Jesus sees and, and Je Jesus knows and Jesus wins. And no matter what you're going through, you can rest on three important truths. God is sovereign. God loves you. And God will make everything right in the end. And even if those things seem to be falling apart, even if nothing seems to go right, even if you lose everything, none of those three things cease to be true. Jesus is saying, Things aren't always what they seem. And circumstances, you know this, are poor arbiters of the way things really are. And says the Lord, if you stick to me and you rely on me and you suffer, you will be rewarded. And your circumstances will be reversed. And that's a promise from he who cannot lie. So there is hope even when things seem hopeless. That's what Jesus is saying. You know, in the movie version of The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers... Towards the end, our hero Frodo says that he can't complete the task he's been given. It's too much. It's too hard. And who could blame him? The, the path has been difficult. It's been fraught with dangers and challenges. We've all been a place that Frodo's been. It's too much. It's too hard. I can't go on. Well, as Frodo says he can't go on, his traveling companion and best friend Sam says this. He says, I know it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, a shadow. 
Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why, but I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folks in these stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't because they were holding on to something. Frodo asked them, what are we holding on to? And Sam said, that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. For the disciple, traversing through the world, encountering pains and dangers and things that don't make much sense to us, isn't something in the world we hold on to. It's someone who is good. We hold on to his promises because he came to set everything right, to break in the new thing God is doing in the world, to reverse the curse and to ultimately make every sad thing come untrue. That's worthy of our hope in the midst of difficulties, isn't it? That whatever you're going through, friend, or whatever you've been through that you can't shake or whatever you might face in the future, what Jesus says here applies. If you lose everything, yours is still the kingdom of God. If you're hungry, you will be satisfied. If you weep now, you will laugh when you're in the presence of your triune God. If people slander you and hate you and malign you, you'll be vindicated and rewarded by the God who holds all treasure. Is that not good news? And when things don't seem to make sense and people who hurt you and circumstances are brought upon you by wicked men, you take heart too. Because those who seem to get away with everything actually will get away with nothing. Because God sees and he hears, and he knows, and their status will be reversed ultimately as well. But fourth, and finally, kingdom people have God's acceptance, so they don't need the acceptance of men. Kingdom people have God's acceptance, so they don't need the acceptance of men. I think it's fair to say you read through these verses, and everything here Jesus says is surprising, yes? It flies right in the face of our culture just as much, if not more, than it did when Jesus uttered these words the very first time. And as shocking as they are, I want you to zoom in on one particularly in the last point, which is verses 22 and 23 and the corresponding woe of verse 26. Jesus says, those who identify with him, let's read them, 22 and 23. Blessed or flourishing are you when people hate you and when they exclude you? Who would say that? Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So then you look at verse 26. Woe to you when all speak, people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Jesus says that those who identify with him should expect hatred, social ostracism, being reviled and rejected, and all because of why. Not because we're insufferable, right, and unlikable, but on the account of the Son of Man. Because we have tied our identity to him and obey him rather than men because we value his kingdom more than things of earth because our ethic is not the ethic of the world because people can look at us and say they're different but why and the answer would be because i serve a greater king and a greater kingdom jesus says that tying oneself to him may yield public rejection but one can stand reassured that such a relationship yields god's blessing and it comes with the only command. Did you see the only command in the Beatitude? Rejoice. In that day and leap for joy. And where does the ability to rejoice come from? The future. Your reward is great in heaven. And this gladness in the face of persecution and re rejection is a key theme in Luke and in the sequel Acts. Where over and over again we see people rejoicing on account of suffering for Jesus. I think one of the most arresting Verses in the Bible is Acts 5.41, where the apostles, do you guys remember this scene? The apostles were brought before the religious leaders, and they don't shriek back from Jesus' name, and they're flogged. They are beaten and commanded, don't talk about Jesus anymore. This is what the verse says. So they went their way, the apostles, from the presence of the council 
rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Rejoice that they were considered worthy to suffer for Christ's name. And you know what they did after that? They kept telling people about Jesus because they didn't give a rip what men thought. And why? Because like our last point said, they looked at his promise like we have in 22 and 23, and they looked beyond their circumstances, and they were encouraged as they saw things from God's perspective on suffering, and they endured because of their commitment to him in the kingdom. I wonder, do you have this kind of perspective, friend? See, y'all are quiet today, but you can agree with me on this, all right? We really, really, really care about what people think of us. Is that fair to say? Isn't that the point of social media? Don't we want people to know our name? Don't we want people to be impressed by us? Yes? Don't we want to be liked and well thought of? Don't we want a lot of friends, or at least to keep the ones that we have? And this desire to be liked, to be impressive, to be thought highly of, can come at the cost of truth. And it could come at the cost of obedience to Christ, and it could cost our moving the line of Christocentric ethic because we're afraid of what will happen if we stand for Jesus and his way. We're afraid of what it costs. We're afraid of men more than God. We're afraid of swimming against the current. But we must. Says Bach again of churches and individuals, don't fall into the trap of courting acceptance for one's message at the expense of truthfulness. That's what false prophets do. Popularity at the expense of being God's faithful representative is disastrous. Truly, it's not a good sign if everyone speaks well of us and of our ethic never challenges sin and if our lives just look like our unbelieving neighbors and family or friends. Isn't there something wrong there? Isn't that what Jesus is saying in verse 26? We must be people of the truth no matter how popular it is and no matter if it will cost us the applause of men. Why? Because we have the approval of the only one who really matters. As Leonard Ravenhill said, if you have the smile of God, what does it matter if you have the frown of men? Or A.W. Tozer, similarly, I claim the holy right to disappoint men in order to avoid disappointing God. If you have the approval of God, what can man do to you? Tell me. You fear men, but you don't fear God? You depend on men, but not on God? What will that get you? <laughs> Applause now, but it won't last, will it? But why do we have the approval of God? Not because of anything we did, but because of what Jesus did on our behalf. Jesus, do you realize, endured everything in this text, didn't he? He was poor. He had a place to stay. He was hungry. He went without food. He wept. He suffered untold agony and loss. He had people lie about him and mock him and revile him accuse him of being a blasphemer and a drunkard and a glutton because he associated with sinners. And you know what? He didn't mind. You know why? He thought you were worth it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God so that you could be reconciled to him so that you don't have to rely on your ability to accumulate wealth and relationships and stuff and a claim to have a good life. He did that so you could live beyond this life and for eternity, living now for the age to come. He did that so that you could live in God's way in this world. He did that so that when life seems hard and difficult and unmanageably painful and broken, you can look to him and see the hope that he provides. So that you can look forward to that day when he personally will reach out a nail-scarred hand and wipe the tears from your weary eyes. Best of all, he did it so you could have him, so you could have him here and now and forever. Is there a greater gift than to have Jesus Christ and for him to have us? Is there anything better? What in this world can compare? What is sweeter we asked at the beginning, 
How would you define the good life? Now I hope we can answer more clearly. The good life is knowing Jesus and him being our truest treasure. Because once you know him and you behold him and you see how much he loves you, you will see the world differently. You will hold on to stuff loosely. You will enjoy life more fully. You'll find your meaning in him. You'll rely on him. You will have an eternal perspective and you will not mind the frowns of men because you have the smile of this beautiful Jesus. And all because of who he is and what he's done. It all depends on him and not you. Is that not freeing? Look to him today, friend. Whatever you're going through, look to Jesus. Be astounded by his glory and grace and beauty. If you're struggling with sin, look to Jesus. He can help you conquer it. If you're struggling because you love your stuff too much, look to him and see that he's better and can actually give you meaning beyond what moth and rust destroy. If you're simply in a state where you weep and mourn, if the pains of life seem too much, look to Jesus. Hold on to the promise that he intends to reverse those tears. And he can relate to them. Maybe you're in a situation I didn't mention. Look to Jesus. And look to the church who's looking to Jesus. And let us help you navigate it. Here's the good life. Knowing Jesus. So whatever is in on, on your heart just now, look to Jesus. And look to Jesus. And look to Jesus. And allow me to close with this quote from Puritan John Owen. And then we'll pray and we'll worship our glorious Christ. This is what he said. Make up your mind that to behold the glory of God by beholding the glory of Christ is the greatest privilege which is given to the believer in this life. This is the dawning of heaven. It is the first taste of that heavenly glory which God has prepared for us. A constant view of the glory of Christ will revive our souls and cause our spiritual lives to flourish and thrive. This is what transforms us daily in the likeness of Christ. So let us live in constant contemplation of the glory of Christ, and power will then flow from him to us, healing all our failings, renewing a right spirit in us, and enabling us to abound in all the duties that God requires of. On Christ's glory would I fix all my thoughts and desires, and the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes and I'll be more and more crucified to this world.